Welcome to Allied, the podcast for everything you need to know about web and video accessibility. I'm your host, Elisa Lewis, and I sit down with an accessibility expert each month to learn about their work. Every episode has a transcript published with it, which can be viewed by accessing the episode on the 3Play Media website. If you like what you hear on Allied, please subscribe or leave a review. Allied is brought to you by 3Play Media, your video accessibility partner. Visit us at www.3playmedia.com to learn why thousands of customers trust us to make their video and media accessible. Today we're joined by two guests, Jacqueline Sawyer and Liz Bacchiano. Jackie is an expert in influencer marketing strategy and joined the Doggist as the Director of Partnerships in the spring of 2020. A renowned marketer, she has run campaigns for Google, Sephora, Converse, and many others. A vet tech in college and a dog lover to her core, Jackie now resides in New Jersey with her husband Steve, their dog Artie, and their guiding eyes for the blind puppy in training, Biscuit. Liz has been working professionally with Guiding Eyes for the Blind for two years and just started raising her third puppy, a German Shepherd named Kathleen. While in college at the University of Delaware, she interned at the Penn Vet Working Dog Center and raised two puppies for the Seeing Eye. After college, she was a kennel technician at the Seeing Eye before working as an assistant dog instructor at Canine Companions. In her free time, Liz works at her family's 300-acre farm in New Jersey and is restarting an off-the-track thoroughbred. Welcome, Liz and Jackie. I'm so excited to have you both on Allied today to talk about the guide dog journey, um, all the way from puppy raising to becoming a guide dog. Before we dive into our topic for today, I always like to kind of kick things off by asking um, our guests to share something important about yourself that's maybe not covered in your bio. So if you each kind of want to share something um, interesting that's not covered in your formal bio, I'd love to hear it. My name's Liz. I am the regional puppy instructor at Guiding Eyes. I guess a fun thing that's not covered in my bio is I am currently raising my seventh puppy. I started puppy raising when I was in college um, and continued through to my professional life. My name is Jackie. I am the director of partnerships at The Doggist. And I'm trying to think of something that wasn't covered in my bio. Um, I basically am obsessed with all kinds of animals. Um, I've owned everything from cats, dogs, horses, to even exotic parrots. Um, and if I could like have a whole zoo in my house, I, I would. <laughs> I love it. I am personally on the same page there. Um, I would have a zoo in my house if I didn't live in an apartment and if my husband would not um, <laughs> leave me because of it. <laughs> um, but thank you both for sharing. I appreciate it. And it's always fun to kind of kick things off, getting to know our guests a little bit better. So this is kind of an exciting episode for us. This is actually the first time we've had two guests on the Allied podcast in one um, interview. So I would love to kind of have each of you describe your sort of different roles um, in terms of guide dog raising. You both come from two different organizations, um, Liz with Guiding Eyes for the Blind and Jackie at the Doggist. 
So can each of you kind of describe, like I said, what your role is um, in the puppy raising guide dog process and how you both are actually working together right now? Sure. So um, I am an employee of Guiding Eyes. I'm a regional puppy instructor. I oversee and help puppy raisers who are volunteers that have our puppies from when those puppies are eight weeks old until they're about a year and a half. In that time, I teach uh, weekly or bi-monthly puppy classes. I help them along any challenges they might have with that puppy, making sure that puppy is hitting their developmental milestones um, and preparing both the puppy raiser and that puppy for that day that they're ready to go into formal training. Um, and at that point, we hand over the leashes to our professional guide dog mobility instructors at Guiding Eyes, where they will then train the puppies to be um, guide dogs and be able to guide someone who is blind. And uh, my role with the doggist is uh, the director of partnerships and marketing. Uh, but one of uh, my additional roles um, is really uh, spearheading the Doggist Fund, which is our philanthropic giving initiative um, where we support organizations in the areas of rescue, rehabilitation, and working dogs. And for the year of 2022, Guiding Eyes for the Blind is our working dog recipient of the Doggist Fund. Um, when we first decided to partner with Guiding Eyes, we were like, what better way to give our audience, you know, a front row seat to what it's like to raise and become a guide dog than to raise one ourselves. And by ourselves, I mean myself. <laughs> so I took one for the team um, and I, I had originally signed up to just become a starter. So, you know, get a puppy from eight weeks and, you know, have them for about a month, maybe, you know, two, three at most. Um, I think it was my second class with Liz. And I was like, Liz, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna finish her. <laughs> I was hooked from, from the first class. Um, so I am a first time puppy raiser with guiding eyes for the blind, but, um, biscuit will definitely not be my last. It's a, it's a very, um, rewarding and addicting experience and I'm, I'm really enjoying it so far. That's awesome. Thank you both for sharing. Um, and that is a really good segue kind of into what the process of puppy raising looks like. Um, you know, it's my understanding that when you're getting a dog ready to hopefully become a guide dog, um, it really starts like even, even before, you know, the puppy is born. Um, but basically it starts very early on. And so that socialization is really important. So Liz, can you talk a little bit about kind of the value of puppy raising um, within the whole process and, and what that looks like? Absolutely. So I really can't put a value on how valuable puppy raisers are. So I know it's very cliche to say that there's no price tag that I could put on a puppy raiser volunteer, but they are, they're they're worth more than all the gold in the entire world. They're worth more than all the money that anyone could ever give us. Um, those volunteers that open their hearts and their homes um, and their, their time and their energy to one of our puppies and committing, like Jackie said, committing whether it's a month or a year and a half to that puppy, there is no understated amount of value I could put to that. Um, they, are, they are phenomenal and my volunteers blow me away every day. So like you said, we start our socialization from the moment those puppies are born. They are born into uh, an environment where they're immediately loved. We have a dedicated staff that stays 24 hours when we have dogs that are due to monitor and care for them. Right from the beginning, they are 
hearing things and smelling things and being touched and held um, and massaged so that they right from the get-go that that human touch and that human bond is a part of their life. Once they get to the point where they, they're opening their eyes and their ears are opening and things, we are then showing them different textures as they start walking around and we're putting little baby harnesses on them and getting them used to wearing things. And we have a dedicated staff, of a group of volunteers that will actually come to our whelping kennel and work with the puppies in our puppy kennel. So every day of their life, there is already someone there dedicated to them and the future development of them being a guide dog. Our puppy raisers have a very, very, very special role. I tell all of my puppy raisers, you are the ones that are teaching that puppy to bond to a human being. So that's the first true bond a puppy will ever have is with their puppy raiser. So I often get like goosebumps and chills when I talk about it because it's still so special to me that we're teaching them, those puppies, that they're going to look up at their handler and we're going to say that you're doing the best job in the entire world. And then one day someone is going to need them and they're going to look down at their dog and tell them they're doing the best job in the entire world. And so that's what that dog is going to work for. And what that's what they're learning for is that that human bond is the biggest part. Besides that, it is my, I, it's my favorite thing about puppy program is watching volunteers learn and then their puppies develop. So a lot of times I have volunteer puppy raisers that come to me that may have never owned a dog before. They may have never trained a dog before. They might tell me that their pet dog is the worst behaved dog in the entire world. <laughs> and I tell them that's okay. I will teach you what to do. Um, so we go through each, each command, each um, learning step, each milestone together. And our puppy raisers gain confidence, puppies gain confidence, and they grow and develop, and then they mature into these wonderful dogs that are ready to become guide dogs. That's really exciting. Um, it's very clear that it's such a journey. Um, and at the puppy stage, they're, they're, they're so impressionable and just kind of like just getting off on, on the right uh, path. So um, Jackie, I'm curious to hear from you what the sort of day-to-day -day experience of raising a puppy and you've had Biscuit now for about six months, is it? I got her uh, March 11th. So yep, just yeah. about Almost six months. Almost yeah. Months. yeah. Um, she just turned, uh, she'll be nine months old um, in October. <laughs> I don't know what month it is right now, but yeah, our, our journey together has been really fun. Um, the first, you know, few months with when you get your puppy are, um, you know, pretty low key. A, a lot of it is, you know, in the house stuff until they, you know, have all of their vaccines. And then once they have their four month uh, evaluation, that's when they earn their puppy vest. And that's when they can start, you know, doing more things, going on more outings outside. Um, like I mentioned, Biscuit um, is eight months old now. So she is able to start going on more, um, you know, errands with me. She's able to start going more places. And it's so incredible to see how much she has matured in such a, you know, it seems like a short period of time to us, but in the dog world, she's like really become an, an adult almost. Um, she's really going through her like adolescent phase right now. Um, and she's laying right next to me. So I keep looking at her, <laughs> um, but she's really become like my best friend. Like we go everywhere. And I joke all the time that like having a guide dog, you know, be, you know, raising a guide dog has become 
such a benefit for me because like, I have so many like mundane errands that I'm like, oh, I don't want to go to the DMV, but it's like, ah, I get to bring biscuits. So, you know, it's not, it's not that bad. Um, so she's kind of like, uh, you know, a motivator in that way. Um, we have to get out and walk every day, even when I feel like laying on the couch. So she's been great for my mental health and getting out of the house and keeping busy. And she's been great for, you know, um, just my experience as a dog owner. I feel like I've learned so much from attending puppy class with Liz. And I, um, feel like I'll have tools to use for the rest of my life for, you know, future dogs, guide dogs or not. Yeah, that's great. Um, I, I think one of the things, and we could get to this a little bit later in the conversation, but certainly the guide dogs have such a huge impact on, um, you know, the person that they are assisting when they eventually become a guide dog. But I think one of the really amazing things, um, that I've kind of heard and, you know, just, uh, yeah, just heard and kind of seen from others doing this is the impact that they kind of leave along the way. Um, it's almost like a secondary impact. Like it's not really their kind of main goal, but, um, all the things that you described, the motivation, the mental health and, um, that companionship, um, that's not even like her and, you know, her, her purpose, um, but that she's really, um, become such an asset to, to you throughout her, like as part of her journey is exciting. And she's a very confident girl. So I I'm excited for her to be able to give that confidence to someone else. That's great. Um, so I, I want to talk a little bit now about kind of what that looks like when someone is getting a, a guide dog. So, um, Liz, maybe you can speak to this, but what is the process like for someone getting a guide dog? Um, what are kind of the steps, um, that they have to go through, um, who's able to get one and, and what makes a person a, a good candidate or the right candidate for getting a guide dog? Sure. So the application process is pretty similar, um, regardless of what guide dog school that you choose to go to. Um, there is about 26, I believe, maybe less than um, guide dog schools. Uh, and so whether you're in the United States or international, um, and so they kind of all go along the same process. So you start with an application. Um, there is uh, that can be found on our website. You can also um, call our applicant office um, and they can help you through that process of filling out an application. After that, uh, depending on the school that you might be applying to, there may be a phone interview. Um, there may be like, you know, a Zoom interview, something like this. And then generally we will then go to the person's home and we do a in-person interview. Um, so someone from a guide dog mobility instructor, someone from Guiding Eyes will go to the person's home. We do have regional guide dog mobility instructors throughout the whole country. Um, so there may be one closer to where you live that might not be directly coming from Yorktown, which is where Guiding Eyes is. Um, in that, they are going to see your home. They see you. Um, they might go through some of your routes that you normally do in your, your town or in your work. And then they're going to do something called a Juno walk. So we have an empty harness. Um, and they're going to have you hold on to that harness. And at that point, they evaluate the person's gait, how quickly um, they walk and anything else that might that person might influence the team or the kind of dog that we might give you. Um, so that's pretty basic um, for most schools. They're going to see you in person. They do a Juno walk uh, with a no dog there. Um, and there's an application process. So being a good candidate. So there's a lot of things that, uh, a lot of factors that any school, especially Guiding Eyes is gonna look at 
for that candidate. And it does vary depending on the school that you apply to. My best advice would be to contact the applicant department of whatever school you may be applying for, and they can better help you through that process. Um, there's a lot of things to factor into it, just the cost and time at the very basic level of owning a dog. Um, though they're amazing, wonderful creatures, they still need dog food and they still need to go to the vet and they still need to be brought to go to the bathroom. Um, so making sure that you have the time uh, to be able to care for one of the dogs. Um, and past that, it's really just um, seeing what needs that you have paired with that school. So at Guiding Eyes for the Blind, we have two unique programs that no other guide dog schools have. The first one is our running guide program. Um, so we will train dogs to continue to guide at a faster pace than a walk. Um, so they're running. Um, and so that's for uh, individuals who may be blind, but also want to run with their dogs. And then we also have our specialized training program. And so we will train other commands um, or other, uh, my brain, brain is going blank. Jackie, help me with another word. Um, so our specialized training program will train additional commands or skills on the dog that will help you um, if you happen to be blind and then may also have another additional disability. Um, so very commonly, uh, we will teach the dog sign language. Um, so if an individual happens to be blind and deaf, um, or if they need some mobility help as well. So maybe a balance harness, for example, but each team is very unique. Um, and so you would need to discuss that with our applicant department of how we can best serve you. Yeah, there's definitely a lot, a lot that goes into it. Um, and I'm curious, you know, it's my understanding that, um, through guiding eyes for the blind, um, individuals, can get the dogs, um, their guide dogs free of charge. So what is kind of, you know, is this something that's covered by insurance? Um, obviously it's quite an expense, um, to raise and care for the dogs. Is it something that, you know, obviously the dogist, um, is raising, um, funds for guiding eyes for the blind. Is it just, um, through donations or how does, how does all of that work? Very good question. We get that question asked a lot. Um, so we provide all of our dogs free of charge. Um, the other things that are free as well is we will bring you to our campus for a two-week class on how to use your dog. So in that time, your dog is fully trained. I like to say they come with some factory preset settings on them, right? And now we need to teach you how to use them. So the, the humans come in not knowing um, as much as the dogs do, and then we pair you together and teach you to work together. So during that two-week time period, we have um, on-site dormitories, so you get your own room and bathroom. We also provide all of your meals free of charge as well, including transportation, um, because we will go and work off campus as well. So all of our donations come from private donations. So they come from individuals. Um, we do not receive any government funding. Um, and so we can help the population of people and as broadly as we would like. And uh, generous donations from different corporations as well, like the Dogus, for example. Um, and then we also work with other local uh, corporations in the area too. So I'm curious, you know, for our listeners, can you, um, and, and either of you can feel free to answer this question, but share some of the sort of common tasks or work that guide dogs do when they're with their handler companion. Liz, do you want to take this one? Do you mind answering the question? My puppy was shredding up a piece of paper. <laughs> um, do you want me to re-ask it? Yes, please. Yeah, yeah no worries. Um, I'm like, only if you show us the puppy, no. Um, <laughs> <really cute. laughs> so, 
So the question was, can you share some examples of the types of tasks or work that guide dogs do when they're with um, their handler? Sure. So uh, across the spectrum, um, the main purpose of our guide dogs is to keep the person safe. Um, So I like to think of it as, and it's a great analogy in 2022, this didn't work years ago, but in 2022, it's like someone was driving a smart car. So the person driving is the one making the decisions, but then the car is checking those decisions. So like, if you say you want to make, you want to switch into the left lane, the car is the one telling you that it's now safe to go into that left lane. That is what it's like to have a guide dog. So I've got the handler that is the guide dog user is the one telling the dog the directions. So they have a route memorized um, in their head of how to get somewhere. So they're the ones telling the dog to go forward. So go in a straight line, dead ahead. And they're the ones telling the dogs when to turn left, when to turn right, um, and to find stairs or wherever their their route might take them. Um, The guide dogs are then taught to stop at every curb. Um, And that's how the graduate will know that they've gotten to a curb and either they need to tell the dog to go keep going straight or to make a left or to make a right. Then the dog will continue to target the next curb. Um, Past that, the graduates will, um, so through their other senses, the, you know, it might be, for the most part, it's hearing. Um, So there's a hearing change. For example, if you're in a grocery store and you're passing each aisle, as you patch past each aisle, it will sound different when you have an open aisle to turn down versus if you have the end cap of that aisle there. So they'll know how many aisles they need to go down. They'll get to aisle five, for example, tell the dog to go down and make a left into aisle five. Um, so once they get to wherever they are, are near where they need to be, um, for example, they may tell the dog to target the door. And so then our dogs are then taught to target specific specific things and then the graduate is welcome to train them to do an infinite amount of more types of targeting so they are can target a door handle the um, base railing of a stair for example so they'll stop at the bottom and the top of a stair they can target empty chairs um, so they could come into a room and the graduate can just tell the dog find a chair and the dog will go and seek an empty chair Um, and different things like that other things that graduates might teach their dogs to do is targeting an ATM. Um, So it's a very specific looking situation and the dog can target an ATM. Um, Other ones that I've heard of is graduates targeting like a trash can um, or the crosswalk signal. um, And the dog will lead the graduate up to it and indicate it with their nose. Um, So past all that, then back to the dog keeping the team safe. Guide dogs are the most unique type of working dog there is in probably the entire world, I'll boldly say, that they are taught something called intelligent disobedience. So when it comes to dogs, we usually say we want them to be obedient, we want them to follow commands, but guide dogs will uniquely disobey a command if it puts the team in danger. So two very common situations, so there are many, many more would be if you're standing at the edge of a train platform and you tell your dog to go forward. So if you tell your dog to walk off the edge of the train platform, that dog will disobey your command and they will either back up, turn left or turn right to keep the team, to keep that person out of danger. Another very, very common one is traffic. Um, So 
whether it's a car making a right on red and the graduate didn't hear the car coming, or even if it is an electric car that has no sound behind it. And the graduate just does not hear the car and tells the dog to go forward and walk out in front of a car, the dog will disobey the command. Um, and so they'll back the graduate out of the intersection, they will turn, they might speed up. Um, and so we kind of give it the dog some discretion on how to keep the team safe. But that's that at the end of the day is the most important is keeping that team safe. Um, so that's a really interesting point that you just made about electric cars. I guess this may be a, a two-part question, but what's the typical sort of length um, of time that a guide dog is working? And is there any sort of retraining or things like that? Um, you know, the example that you kind of just mentioned, technology changes, things may change. Maybe another example could be um, a crosswalk sign, you know, making kind of different sounds than when the dog was initially trained. Um, how do you keep up with that to make sure that the team is safe and, and you know, the, the handler can continue to be independent and be um, really confident in that? So it takes um, roughly four to six months for a dog to be fully trained. So that is after the puppy raising stage, they've gone back to guiding eyes, they're finished all of their medical clearances, and they've been paired with a guide dog mobility instructor. So just about four to six months um, until that dog is deemed safe enough to be matched with someone. At that point, we're then looking for the perfect match for that dog and graduate. Um, and so we're looking at things based on where that dog likes to live compared to where a student might live, how quickly that dog walks compared to how a student walks. So we try to make a nice, good, perfect match. So if you're uh, a slower set dog that likes to be in the country, it's not going to be a very good match if we pair you with a human that walks very quickly and lives in Manhattan, for example. So we try to pair those two things. Um, so I would say 2020 was the best example of a time where things changed very quickly. Um, and the biggest uh, challenge during 2020 would be the plexiglass um, shields that went up everywhere, um, whether they were just at the counter and you, you used to be able to put something down on the counter and now there was a piece of plexiglass there, or whether there were barriers now where there formerly were not barriers. Um, the dogs are trained how to go through stanchions, so how to kind of weave through those, um, because from a dog's perspective, they could go right under the stanchions in, you know, the bank, for example. But we do teach them that there is dog clearance and then there's human clearance. Um, so the dog is taught to look up and see if it is safe for the human to go through, whether it's uh, like that or whether it's a low hanging branch, for example, as well. So I will say the dogs are astoundingly smart. Um, so they do pick up very quickly when things like that change. So the plexiglass shields everywhere. The dogs, for the most part, picked it up very quickly. They were like, hey, there's an obstacle right in front of us. We need to figure this out. For when it comes to the electric cars, there have been petitions for years um, to put a sound behind those cars. Um, because when the cars are going under certain miles per hour, they are silent. Um, and I know myself, I have been in parking lots and an electric car has come up behind me and there's, I have full use of my vision and I wouldn't have never known that car was behind me. Um, and so there has been a petition for there to be some low hum, some kind of click, something for those electric cars to have a sound behind them. Um, so the electric cars continue to be a challenge. Um, and the way that Guiding Eyes works with that is that we have, have an electric car on our 
campus. So we use electric cars in our training now. Um, the other things that we'll use is um, things that have changed is a lot more people have electric scooters and hoverboards um, and diff those different types of, uh, you know, modes of transportation. And so we will teach the dogs how to walk around them, how to avoid them, how to react to them. Um, and so we do try to keep up as things change in the world, as graduates come to us and say, hey, I had this challenge or hey, this happened to me. We, we take it and we add it to our training program. Um, as the dogs continue to age, our dogs typically work as guide dogs for somewhere around eight to 10 years. So typically they're graduating when they're about two. Um, and so they typically might retire sometime around 10 to 12 years old. That does vary depending on where that dog works, how often they worked. Um, so a dog that has traveled weekly by plane and lives in Manhattan may have a shorter working career compared to a dog that lives in a very rural part of the country. Um, but it is also very specific to the dog as well. Just like humans, everybody ages a little bit differently. Um, through the placement of that dog, we do stay in communication with the graduate. So we provide lifelong, life long follow-up of the part with the partnership of the dog. So at any point from the moment that they graduate from Guiding Eyes, if they need any form of help, we will follow up by phone, email, video. We will send someone to their home. Um, we will bring them back. We will bring the team back to campus. We'll bring the dog back to campus. Um, we will do whatever that team needs to make them successful and help them through any challenges that they might have. Um, this includes if they need any help with veterinary care as well, um, if they need any second opinions, Guiding Eyes will be there to help support that as well. Um, most of the time from our graduates, generally they, are, they, they work with their dog every day. So they're gonna start feeling their dog hesitating to get up to put their harness on, slowing down on routes, um, maybe not taking the stairs as confidently. You know, those, those typical signs of any dog aging that graduate is gonna start to see. And those that, that, excuse me, that conversation will start with guiding eyes and that will start with our graduate department. And then we'll start talking about a successor dog as well. Thank you. There's so much that goes into it. Um, and it's, yeah, I, I didn't even think, you know, before this conversation, about kind of the changes in technology and um, all that you just mentioned, but the, the dogs are so smart, like you said, and so adaptable. I'm curious just to hear um, from you, you know, and, and maybe Jackie, this is a good question for you. What um, sort of myths or maybe misconceptions um, did you have, or kind of, did you hear about, or what was maybe most surprising to you kind of throughout your process of raising a puppy and experiencing sort of the different, um, the differences between having, uh, you know, a family dog, um, versus raising a puppy that's going, that needs to take into all these different, take all these different things into consideration. And, um, what did, what sort of advice do you have to other people who may be wanting to puppy raise? I would say the biggest misconception that people have, um, especially when learning that I'm puppy raising or if I'm talking about puppy raising, they're like, oh, well, I, I'm not a dog trainer. Neither am I. <laughs> That's you're, you're puppy raising. You're not puppy training. Like, yes, of course we are teaching, you know, very basic obedience, but I am not teaching Biscuit to become a guide dog. I'm setting her up for success to become a guide dog, but I am in no means teaching her those life-saving skills that she will one day learn. And I think that that's 
intimidating to people. I think that they think that they have to have all of these years of experience. Um, as Liz mentioned earlier, some of the puppy raisers have never owned a dog before. And I have to say, working with Guiding Eyes has been such an incredible experience. They provide you with so many resources. They hold your hand every step of the way. There's puppy classes in the very beginning, every week, then they go bi-monthly. You never feel like you are alone or that you are in over your head. I've owned dogs all of my life and I still have questions about, you know, how to perfect a, a particular skill or, you know, she's doing this. Is that normal? And Liz is literally there for me 24 seven. Um, another misconception I would say is that she's not like a normal dog. And for the most part, when she's home, aside from not being allowed on the furniture, she's treated just like my pet dogs. She plays just like my pet dogs. Um, she has just as much fun, if not more fun than my pet dogs. Um, she loves to swim. She loves to play in the yard. She loves to play fetch. She loves to dig. She loves to, you know, eat bones. Um, so, you know, aside from the you know, the guidelines that we have from Guiding Eyes in terms of training protocol and the milestones that she is supposed to reach. For the most part, she's just like any other dog, just really exceptionally smart. <laughs> I would say one thing that I hear all the time is when I do events or I go and I talk to people about puppy raising is people usually say to me, how could I give them up? You know, they're like, I have them in my house for a year. I live with them. How could I give them up? And, uh, that is absolutely valid. And I do think it takes a very special person to be a puppy raiser, but I often say, how could you not? All that a puppy raiser does is we live with them for about a year to a year and a half. And then that dog goes on their journey, right? So it's just like having a kid. You have them for a couple of years, you know, they grow up, you, you live with them, you teach them things, and then you send them off to college. So that's basically what we're doing with our puppies. We often say when they go back to Yorktown for training, they go off to college um, and they get to make their own choices when they go there. Um, a lot of times people will come to puppy raising and they come to Guiding Eyes for the dogs. Um, I've worked with a few different schools now, um, a few different service schools in the United States, and I will tell you there is nothing that will beat a guiding eye Labrador, nothing in this entire world. They are the most unique creatures I have ever met. Um, they'll come for the dogs, but you're going to stay because of the people, whether it's the other puppy raisers that are in our regions um, or it's the graduates that you meet um, and it's the, the people that you get to hear that their lives have changed. Um, I've heard of, of many testimonials from many graduates um, and people who have service dogs and their, their lives are never the same. And all I really did was had a dog pee in my house for a little bit. Then she became a, an adolescent and she talked back to me for a few months and then she matured into this beautiful dog. And then I gave, I handed her off to someone who needed her more than I would ever need her. Um, and so that's really why I think people will raise again and they keep coming back is whether it's the community of puppy raisers or it's those graduates and you say to yourself, how could I not? Absolutely. Um, I, I really want to um, save this question for the end, but I would love to hear um, some of those testimonials. Um, and impact stories that you've heard from graduates. So you can uh, start thinking about kind of your favorites. I'm really curious um, to talk a little bit more about service and working dogs more broadly. Um, so, you know, I know there are different types of service dogs and different types of working dogs, guide dogs, certainly being one of them, but can you talk a little bit more, um, Liz, I, I believe you've worked with working dogs and I think also diabetes alert dogs. 
what, um, I guess kind of pairing this with, you know, what happens if a, a dog, um, that is on the trajectory to become a guide dog has kind of a career change or isn't successful. Are they maybe thought of, um, and kind of transition to a different type of working or service dog? Um, and, and can you talk a little bit about what those other service, um, services are that dogs can be trained to do and can offer? Sure. So um, some of the other schools that I've worked with um, and organizations I've worked with is I've worked for Canine Companions, the Seeing Eye, and the Pen Vet Working Dog Center. And in all of those places, including Guiding Eyes, you cannot make a dog do anything. So um, sometimes people will say, oh, I feel so bad for them. Look at them working. These dogs want to do their job. They want to be here. Um, we have for guiding eyes specifically, we have set points through the dog's lifetime where we, it's kind of like those checks and balances. Like we check in, make sure they're hitting their developmental milestone, but then also seeing if they actually like being here. Um, and we're listening to them. So no matter what that dog is saying back to us, we are listening to how they're feeling. So at any point in the entire process, um, a dog can be released from um, our program or any program. Um, the most common reason I would say is more um, along the medical route. Um, so these dogs need to be healthy enough to be able to comfortably do their job for eight to 10 years. So again, we're not going to put a dog out that may start having discomfort when they're five, six years old due to um, you know, a skeletal issue or maybe their eyes may start deteriorating a little bit sooner. And so that's the first reason. The second reason generally falls along behavioral or temperament. Um, so whether a dog just has a, a hankering to chase squirrels and that's something that we can't teach them not to do, um, or they may have a, a higher level of fear um, and they can't really work through that, um, we will listen to them and then bring them into another program. Other programs that Guiding Eyes specifically works with, um, uh, first and foremost, we feel like we brought this dog into the world to be a working dog. And so we would like them to go into a working role. Um, so we work with different um, state police and private organizations that train detection dogs. So our dogs will be trained to be narcotics, explosive, um, electronic, you name it they can make a detection dog for it. Um, and so they may go into the police force. And then we also work with other schools that train diabetic alert dogs. They train service dogs for children on the autism spectrum. And then they will train service dogs um, for veterans that have PTSD. And so those are the, some of the specific roles that Guiding Eyes works with. And then ultimately, if that dog is not interested in being a working dog and they have no interest in it, then they will fall back and it's by no means a lesser tier. Um, they will fall into our pet category. And so that puppy raiser who volunteered a year and a half of their life to bring that puppy along will have first option to adopt that puppy back into their home as a pet. And if they're not able to, Guiding Eyes does have a public adoption list. And so it is filled with people from the public who know how wonderful our dogs are and are waiting to adopt one. I'm curious in terms of, you know, the service dogs and kind of specifically guide dogs, um, is, does Guiding Eyes work with other accessibility organizations um, or other organizations for, you know, blind and low vision individuals? Um, and how does, how does that partnership work and, and how can, um, you know, how do you kind of get involved with those other organizations that are in the accessibility field? Sure. 
So uh, right off the bat, Guiding Eyes does have partnerships with other guide dog schools um, across the country and in the world. Um, we are a part of the International Guide Dog Federation, um, which is kind of an umbrella organization that oversees all schools that train guide dogs. So we have a lot of partnerships with other schools and then other organizations. Um, one requirement is that we ask the students to have some orientation and mobility training. So we work with a lot of organizations that provide orientation and mobility um, because it's a little bit different when you have, when you may be using a white cane compared to a guide dog. Um, so there's different cues that you're gonna give the dog. You're gonna stand a little bit differently as well. Um, and then past that, we do have other organizations. Um, I could definitely give you a more extensive list than I actually know, um, but the Chicago Lighthouse um, is an organization. Um, I don't know the full extent of the everything that they do, but we did have a partnership with them where we were pairing dogs with children who were blind. And so that that child could get an experience of what it was like to have and care for a dog so that when they got to be the age where they were eligible to have their own guide dog, it was a little bit one less hurdle. So it wasn't like learning how to care for a dog and learning your orientation mobility and getting a guide dog and all the everything, all, everything else that goes along with that. Um, so we tried to tackle that first step. So what it's like measuring out their food, cleaning up after your dog, grooming your dog, um, making sure your dog gets their exercise and play time and gets that time to be a dog. Um, so we do have organizations that we'll work with um, outside of ourselves, but um, we also have on staff people that will work with our graduates who may run into um, access issues um, and helping educate organizations on the Americans with Disabilities Act um, and what our dogs, where our dogs are allowed to go, how our graduates are allowed to use them as well. Um, and you, you mentioned, you know, the white cane and how as um, sort of the graduate, there's a lot of learning that goes into it and how to kind of utilize um, and work with their dog rather than a white cane. Kind of on that note, I'm curious if you can share what, um, I guess, what kind of differs and what um, I think a lot of it probably goes back to independence, but what can a dog or a guide dog offer that maybe some of these other accessibility tools cannot? Absolutely. So I would just like to start with, and I am not speaking from experience. Um, I am, I, from what I'm going to explain to you is what I have heard from our graduates. Um, and so any graduate who has had that transition from using a white cane to using a guide dog can do a much better job of explaining this than myself. But some of the things that I have heard from graduates is first and foremost, there's a partnership. So that dog is going to be giving you information as you're actively giving them information. And so just the communication is a little bit different than when you're using your white cane. Um, the dog is also going to be picking up on different cues from the environment and things that are much farther ahead of you than, than the white cane is able to pick up as well. Um, just like the white cane is not infallible, our dogs are also not infallible. The dogs are going to have good days and bad days as well. Um, another side of the coin that's to look at is your white cane is never going to get sick. Your white cane is never going to limp. Um, and so there's, there is the side of that. Your dog is a living, breathing creature. Um, that's going to be, you know, developing and progressing in age as well. Um, so past that we do, um, train our dogs to be able to work, uh, with 
uh, a white cane as well. So some of our graduates will use them in tandem. Um, and there will be situations where the graduate may need to default back to their white cane um, rather than 100% relying on their dog. Um, but for the most part, from what I have heard from graduates is that partnership. Um, that partnership and the amount of information that dog is collecting um, compared to the, the white cane. And, and a little bit more of the graduate can relax a little bit more. So rather than being hypervigilant, might being a little bit more hypervigilant while using the white cane, um, they can put a little bit more reliance on their dog to be listening and hearing things and picking up what's going around them. And I'm curious if you can both share um, what is some of the right etiquette when you're sort of out in public as an individual and you see a working dog or a dog that's in training to become a working dog? Um, what can people do to make it easier for, for those individuals and those dogs? I would say um, if you see a guide dog out in public, um, whether, and I should, I should restart that by saying whether you see someone using a guide dog or using a white cane, um, the best thing to do is to use your voice to communicate with that person. Um, so whether you are standing on the sidewalk with your dog, just being able to say to that person, hey, I'm on your left, I have a dog with me, he's on leash. Um, so just so the graduate knows what their dog may be reacting to. Um, and same with if there is a danger. So not stepping in right away to one, just definitely plain etiquette, not placing your hands on another human being, um, regardless of who that human being is. So not grabbing the harness, not grabbing the dog, not grabbing um, the guide dog handler either. Um, so the dogs are trained to react to danger in a very certain way. So it might look differently than how you want that dog to react, but that dog is trained to do its job. Um, so, so like I said, the dogs are gonna indicate on a curb. So that dog may get pretty close to the street um, before they stop walking, but that's what they've been trained to do is stop at that curb. Um, so they will not walk into traffic, um, but they will stop. And that's how the graduate knows where they are. Um, so if you see anyone that is blind, use your voice, communicate with them that's going on. Um, graduates, like I said, the dogs are not infallible. Environments, stores, the setting inside the store has changed. So if a graduate had memorized that store and then all of a sudden um, that grocery store does another redo and changes all the aisles again, the graduate will need to ask for help. So just simply asking someone, hi, do you need help? Um, and they will respond back to you, yes or no. Um, and uh, and that goes across the board. So no matter what service dog you see out in the world, just asking the person if they need help and then accepting that answer. Number one rule when you see any working dog out in the world anywhere um, is do not talk to the dog. So that dog is doing a job, just like when you are at your job, it can be annoying and tedious when someone continues to come over and poke you on the shoulder and pat you on the back and, you know, try to feed you. That's what we don't want to do for our dogs either. So they need to stay focused. Their focus, though, is keeping that human safe. So even just for a moment, if you call out to the dog, if you throw a treat on the ground and that dog takes their attention off of their handler, that may put that handler at risk. Um, so not all disabilities are visible. Some disabilities are invisible. So you may not know from looking at that person why they may or may not have that service dog with them. And you may not know what that dog is doing. Um, so if it is a diabetic alert dog, that dog does need to keep his nose attentive to the handler and 
continually checking that handler as they're going through the store. So you throwing some food on the ground or distracting them with your own scent may distract, may confuse or distract the dog that might be working. And I'll say a very common occurrence that I've experienced with Biscuit is everyone knows that they're, you know, they shouldn't touch a working dog, you know, a dog wearing a vest, but so many times we get the, I can't look at you, but you're so cute. That's not any better. (laughs) You're still distracting the dog, even if you're not touching them, but you're talking to them in a baby voice. We know that they're cute, but you know, try not to. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's a really good distinction. And you both touched on it. It's not just about touching, which you certainly shouldn't do. And I think people for the most part know that, but trying to get their attention or talking to them, um, is equally as, you know, it's, it's the same, it's the same end result, um, is distracting the dog. So yeah, I'm sure, um, Jackie, I was going to ask it, but I'm sure that particularly, you know, with a puppy and be kind of being in training, maybe people think that they can sort of get away with it because they're not, um, you know, with, uh, someone who's fully relying on them at that time, um, probably want to, get in there and, and get a little biscuit snuggle. Um, but definitely it's important that dog is on their, on their way to, you know, learning how to keep someone safe. Absolutely. Um, as we begin to wrap up, um, I'm curious if you can each share kind of, you know, the most impactful or sort of your favorite experience. Um, Jackie, maybe if you want to touch on kind of your favorite experience so far with Biscuit um, and Liz, maybe if you want to touch on kind of the most impactful story that you've heard from a graduate, I would love to to hear both of those and and feel free to kind of jump in um, if you have stories of, I know you also were puppy raising and um, uh, Jackie, I'm sure you've also heard from graduates as well, particularly through the Doggist Fund, so um, I'll say so far, um, you know, as I mentioned, Biscuit's getting older now, so we're able to do a little bit more. And recently we had our first um, really big outing. Uh, Liz took uh, a few of her regions to the Museum of Natural History in New York City. And that was really Biscuit's biggest outing. Um, she's never been to New York City before. She's never been in a place as crowded at the museum before. Um, it was a Sunday afternoon. Um, very crowded and she really handled it so incredibly well. She absolutely blew my mind uh, with how confident she was, how focused she was on me. Um, And it was really moving to see, you know, all of our months of hard work, Um, you know, even if it's just practicing walking up and down the driveway when she was eight weeks old, you know, it's all coming together and to watch her you know, piece those puzzle pieces together and, you know, understand, okay, this is how I'm supposed to behave in an elevator. And this is how we, you know, walk slowly downstairs. And there were many times at the museum where there were little children hands, you know, reaching at her from all angles and she handled it so well. And I just could not be more proud of her. And I can't wait to continue to experience bigger and cooler things with her. Um, So yeah, that's been, that's been really exciting for me to watch her, her grow and learn and just impress me every single day. Yeah. Whenever someone asks me this question, I always have so many stories that fly through my head and I never know which one I want to tell. Um, probably one of my favorites, um, there was a mom who came to get her first guide dog and she had two little kids at home. So I feel like any mom or parent out there can 
feel with this story. So that's why I like it. So she had little kids, like three and five, like little, little, right? So they're walking and ambulatory and, you know, getting more and more active. She came in and she got her first guide dog and she, so the guide dogs are taught that, like I said, that, that they're not dog height, it's human height. So, right. It's not dog with it's human and dog with. So they're, they're trained very specifically to know that they and their human need to fit through a doorway. Right. And so when this graduate went back to her home, she was worried about her, you know, being able to hold her kids' hands and walk them around and walk them on the sidewalks. And, you know, cause three and five, you're still holding their hands. And so her guide dog all on its own, figured out how to now be three wide or four wide in some cases where she would hold her five-year-old's hand and they would hold the three-year-old's hand and et cetera. And the dog knew exactly how to guide all of them together and made that woman so like the, the independence is just unstoppable. I mean, the, the big things that these dogs do and they travel this country and they, they walk across you know, walk through New York city, like it's nothing, but then just the little pieces of independence of a mom being able to walk with her kids and, and lead her children. Right. And so not having to ask someone for help or ask someone, you know, what direction they need to go in. And then another story that she shared was she used to put like little bells on her kids clothes so that she'd know where they were on the playground and then she could find them. And of course, as children are very smart, they learned how to either take them off or hold the bells and then she couldn't hear them. And so her dog learned how to target her children. And so instead of asking someone else for help or, or having that, you know, the, just the anxiety that that must cause by all of a sudden not hearing those bells, like I can't even imagine like the feeling that must be when your kid just gets smart enough to take the bell off. But the fact that the dog could get up and she could tell the dog to go find her kids and the dog would lead her through the playground right to her kids. Um, and it just, just like that. And just in that, it just gives someone so much independence and, and the ability to do something they weren't able to do before. And that's what it always goes back to is like, all I did was teach that dog how to not go to the bathroom in my house, right? Like all I taught was that dog to sit down and stay. Like I, the gift that you're able to give someone that they can carry on their day, they can be a, 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 an influence in the world that they weren't before is astounding. The, um, you know, you're spending time with a puppy, um, but really you're changing someone's entire life. And just, that's a great example that you shared to kind of allow a mom and give a mom or parent the tools to be a parent um, is, is really amazing. So thank you for sharing that story. As we wrap up, and I want to be mindful of the time, um, I'd love to just kind of hear from each of you where our listeners can learn more and follow along and get involved and donate um, to the doggist and Guiding Eyes um, and to really support and learn more about both of your great organizations. So for Guiding Eyes, you can go right to our website. It's guidingeyes.org. Um, we are also on pretty much every single social media platform. Um, and so you can donate right at our website. Um, if you're more interested in volunteering for us, you can go um, onto our website under volunteer and see all the different opportunities there are to volunteer. Our puppy raising regions are limited to the East Coast of the United States. Um, but I would challenge anyone that no matter where you are, look up your local service dog schools around you. Um, they're across the entire country. They are all doing a phenomenal job to help humankind um, and any person out there who needs the use of a, a service dog. 
So please feel free to look up any service dog that it's school that is near you. Every country has one as well um, throughout the world too. And you can find the doggist at the doggist on Instagram or at thedoggist.com. Great. Thank you both so much. I really appreciate you joining me on Allied and talking about uh, puppies and accessibility for the last uh, 40 minutes or so. It's two of my, my very favorite topics. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you Thanks for listening to Allied. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave us a rating and review. To catch all the latest on accessibility, visit www.3playmedia.com backslash allied podcast. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.